Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Very glad that you are listening in on our discussion. Uh, today we're discussing Hebrews 5. My name's Cameron. Uh, g'day everybody, Ken here. And I'm Lachlan. Now, uh, Locke, I think it was when I was recording with you, was it, I joyfully announced that I could see my desk? That's correct. Yeah. How long has that lasted? Well, I can still see parts of it, but the bad news is I can see a lot less of it than I could last time I was recording this <laughs> podcast. So uh, what I need is uh, to to change my mindset. I need to be born again when it comes to organizing my desk. <laughs> Well, you'll you'll be pleased to know, in my experience of, and and observation, a clean and organized physical desk is not always directly correlated with clean, clear and organized thinking. Uh, I can tell you, as someone who's hung around university departments here and there in different <laughs> places, that there is no strong correlation between those two things. Right. Oh, good. Well, I'll cling to that in hope then. We're going to start in Hebrews 4 only because various things have been touched on. Sabbath, rest, Moses, angels, and Christ is compared to these things. But the the theme of chapter 5, which is the priesthood, is actually introduced in chapter 4. So shall we uh, just read, and Locke, I think it was with you that I discussed these things. Uh, Do you want to read just verse 14, 15, 16 of the preceding chapter, chapter 4? Sure. Here it is. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'll pick up in chapter 5. Every high priest selected to represent men and women before God and offer sacrifices for their sins, should be able to deal gently with their failings, since he knows what it's like from his own experience. But that also means he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the people's. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to stop there because I think we should discuss this section uh, 11 and to, uh, 11 through to 14 is a slightly different sentiment. So let, let's stop there and discuss the priesthood. The thing that jumped out at me was uh, we often say that Christ was perfect. In Hebrews it says Christ was made perfect. Hmm. As in not made at the beginning, but he, his experiences and choices, the suffering he, he went through made him perfect. I was going to pick up on that. In verse 8, um, I'd like a bit of help with this one. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What In what sense did Christ, as God incarnate, need to learn obedience? And how does suffering teach one obedience? 
Well, I think that's a really interesting question um, and one that we should explore. So maybe we should set out a list of things to explore uh, a little bit further and include (laughs) that on the list. One of the things that came back to my mind was the parallels between that passage and the passage that we earlier spoke about um, uh, in Hebrews 2, uh, particularly at verse 17 and following where it said, for this reason, he had had to be made like his brothers in every way. Interesting, again, he had to be made um, like mm. his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God um, and that he make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So I, I think it's interesting to look back at that passage and look at the the uh, context of that argument, which was uh, Jesus has become a human being. Uh, And then uh, to uh, compare it to the passage that we've just read here about uh, about Jesus as the high priest able to sympathise with our weaknesses. There seem to me to be lots of parallels there. Mm. Mm. Ken, this is not helping us get anywhere near any sort of timely resolution for this podcast episode, but I've thought of another thing to add to our list. Uh, More emphasis seems to be placed in the book of Hebrews on Christ's suffering than his death. Mm. Almost as if, had he been hit by a bus, and, I mean, his suffering doesn't, I think, just refer to the suffering on the cross. Christ suffered, he he was hungry. He Mm. was irritated by the people. Um, he wept over Jerusalem. He suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not just referring to the to the um, to the crucifixion, but what it does seem to suggest is, had God been born into the world and lived a very isolated life as God's son and died um, by some painless and instant method, you could still say, oh, "Well, the Son of God died as a sacrifice of sins." But but what's being suggested here is that it's not the the death, well, the death is obviously very significant, but what's referred to often is that Christ was made perfect through suffering. This is not the first time that sentiment's been picked up in Hebrews. I think we picked it up in chapter 3, was it? Uh, or was that chapter 2? Was that the one you were talking about, Ken? I think that might have been chapter 2, but yes. Yeah, so it seems that Christ's suffering is something that's that's quite significant. And on this occasion, too, there's something that I'm not sure about. It said that, uh, with respect to Gethsemane, uh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Can I? What does that mean? Uh, well, can I um, raise this? You have immediately assumed that when it says uh, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears, that that's a reference to Gethsemane. Now, uh, no doubt it is. Um, uh, but is it a reference only to Gethsemane? Uh, it doesn't limit itself to the days at the end of his life. Uh, it says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, the one who could save him from death, well, isn't that an interesting question? Did the one who could save him? Yeah. And it says, uh, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Well, were his prayers in fact answered? Did he not die? Um, well, it suggests that Christ needed saving from death. Yeah, and 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 his prayers were heard. Did they work? Was he in fact saved from death? Uh, and how does that fit in with 
uh, the uh, concept of atonement that we have uh, based on Jesus' death on the cross. And Ken, you just made a distinction there. You said uh, Christ's prayers were heard. Did they work? Yeah. Very interesting question. What makes a prayer work? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mean you mean Christ was he saved from death? Is I think what you, what you meant. That, that but is sure, what I if mean. if prayer, yeah, if prayer is an effort to communicate, and um, I ask you a question and you understand the question, mm. then that communication has worked, mm. independent of how you answer the question. And it has indeed yeah. been heard. The prayer has been heard. Um. Yeah. So there's a number of things that are suggesting themselves to me as as partial keys here, just because they're ideas that are linking together. This isn't the first time in Hebrews we've talked about being saved from death. Um, in an earlier chapter, though, remember the wording was saved from a fear of death. You know, Jesus came um, to to save. It was a it was quite specific and slightly unusual in its wording. Save us from save those who are it's afraid of death. Two, I think like. it is. Uh, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Yeah. Now, is there some sense here, the rescue him from death? Is there some connection here? The one who could rescue him from the fear of death and by extension, all of us from the fear of death. The, um, you know, that's an interesting sort of thought. And then the other one I wanted to pick up was this idea of suffering. Um, Cam, you've already drawn our attention to this, but is there some... I felt there was a connection, and now the more I've looked at the verses, I can't see it explicitly. Is there a connection here between the word suffering and the word temptation? The logic seems to be Jesus can be our high priest because he was tempted in all ways like us. And even though he was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. If it said he learned obedience from the things he in which he was tempted, well, that is really, that is the whether it's learning obedience or demonstrating obedience it's it's in the face of temptation i want to do something else but i am going to obey that's that's obedience if if you're instructed to do the thing you desperately want to do then it's hard to even be sure that that is obedience <laughs> right yes you're following the instruction but are you doing it out of obedience or are you doing it because that was what you wanted to do anyway you're doing it out of agreement so, you know, rather than obedience yeah yeah so i'm just wondering is there is there some sense here he learned obedience from the things he suffered he suffered in the same ways as us he was tempted in the same ways as us is is there some connection i think i'm stretching it too far but well, there it is felt well I'm I'm not sure if you are, Locke. In Gethsemane, there's that, uh, the prayer, if it's your will, may this cup be taken from me. If we suppose Christ and God to be whatever the Trinity means, it's the oneness of some kind, uh, that prayer in Gethsemane introduces daylight between them. Hmm. Christ reckon, in as much as Christ says, what you want and what I want on this occasion might be different. Mm. Mm. That, that suggests that the incarnation, if it did nothing else, um, severed the unity of the Trinity in some sense. Because Christ was, in the start of Hebrews, the perfect representation of God, is what it says. Hmm. And the instrument through which God did everything. And then and then in Gethsemane, you find that there's the incarnation event has resulted in a situation in which Christ does want something different to God the Father. Hmm. So maybe in that sense, God did learn obedience, if that was the first time that had ever happened. 
Yeah, I think that's expressing well the kind of idea that I was um, vaguely tinkering with in my mind. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, to think, does God need to learn obedience? In in the big picture, if God's the biggest thing, <laughs> kind of gets to do what he wants. How is that obedience to anything? <laughs> I mean, it's a bit mind-stretching. There's, a, there's another interesting... Uh, I, I'm, uh, I really appreciate all of that discussion. I think it's fabulous. Um, I'm still stuck on my uh, uh, prayer to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Um, uh, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Um, I, I think the idea of learning there, he, that, that he learned obedience, what does that say about... Uh, the concept of perfection. If we assume that Christ is perfect and God is perfect, uh, and we equate those two or give them some equivalence, um, uh, then clearly perfection is not contrary to learning. Um, uh, that it, it, it's not some sort of fixed ultimate state uh, that you achieve. Hmm. Um, it is a state in which growth remains possible and indeed perhaps growth is a goal um uh that's one element of it but the other bit i keep coming back to is this death i have i confess been a little bit um uh fixated recently after some discussions i've had with some uh friends who suggest to me that uh religion is really just wish fulfillment and uh the human ego being unable to accept the cessation of its important existence um uh, and so I've been wrestling a little bit with this concept of resurrection. Um, uh, and but but here I wonder whether or not there might be some little just little hint, um, uh, because he was saved from death. Uh, his prayer was mm. heard. Um, uh, insofar as death is uh, the sort of end to life in which one knows yeah. nothing um, uh, that's spoken of in Ecclesiastes. Uh, then if one dies and then is resurrected, uh, you have, in that very way, been saved from death. And and perhaps that's the sort of yeah. thing that Jesus was talking about well, himself when he was... Wait, Cam, we'll just wait. Uh, when, uh. When, 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 he, when he was... Um, when he said in John chapter 650, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. Um, hmm. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread... He will live forever. Um, so you won't die. Uh, you will live forever. Um, and 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 anyway, there, there's there's perhaps something of of, of an answer to prayer there. Cam, sorry. Yeah, no, I was a bit worried then when you turned to the Gospel of John, Ken, that you were going to pull out my favourite story and not leave me, give me the chance to to quote it yet again on this podcast. Well, but now you but can. when in the Gospel of John, yeah, when. When they come and tell him that Lazarus is ill, Christ says, ah, oh, this, this sickness won't end in death. Yeah. And then a few days later, he says to his disciples, oh, we better go and you know, head up to Bethany because Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples say, oh, that's good, he's getting better. And Jesus says, no, 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 he's dead. He's dead. And you know, I'm glad he's died <laughs> because it will help you believe in me. Yeah. Which, which would have been so perplexing <laughs> for the disciples. He said emphatically mm. that sickness won't end in death, and then he says, oh, "Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad it's happened." Which would have been an awful thing to say, 
because Lazarus was a close friend. I'm glad it's happened this way because it will it will help you believe in me. Um, and of course, uh, the sickness doesn't end in death. Or the sickness does. Presumably Lazarus was healed healthy, but Lazarus didn't end at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, good thoughts, Ken. Hmm. I uh, There's another part of this that always gives me a little bit of... Uh, I, I trip over it a bit. The, this idea of um, being tempted in in the same ways as us. Um, and I guess this is coming a little bit... I'm not quite sure if... So verse 2 of chapter 5, and he's able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. Um, that's not quite the same idea, but we have read of the... Um, it's uh, chapter 4 and verse 15, I think. Chapter 4 and verse 15 is the one that I was yeah. thinking of more clearly. Yeah, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet did not sin. So, fair, except that Jesus as a human only lived a life as a male human, and only lived a life as a male human up till what we would call not even really middle age. Um, are there... Is it possible to make the claim, oh, well, actually, I am in a position that Jesus never experienced? Um, you know, he didn't experience the, the stage of life where your body is slowing down or your mind is becoming scattered and forgetful. And, you know, I don't know. Are there sort of temptations? Or can we get out of this by simply generalizing and saying, well, let's face it, almost all temptations are really only one of a few categories. There's the selfishness. You know, I want something special for me that's not for everyone else. Um, there's there's a, a kind of a quest for power, which is related to selfishness, but it's more specifically about having the ability to, or the opportunity to control what someone else gets. Um, you know, do we get out of it by that way and say, well, Jesus was tempted in the same ways as us because there are only a few ways. There are lots of specifics, but there are only a few different ways in which we are tempted. Yeah, I don't know, Locke. Uh, when, when I had a student once say to me with great glee, he said, can God do anything? And I said, well, give me an example. And the student said, well, can God, can God create a rock so large that he can't lift it? <laughs> and there's, there's, of course, no way you can get out of that. And I said to the student, well, of course, in that sense, God can't do everything. Uh, God could choose to miraculously open the door behind me here. Or he could choose to not open the door miraculously. Either of those is a choice, and he can do either of them, but at any one moment in time, he must choose between them. Mm. Uh, and so in that sense, that's, an that's a trivial example of where the specifics, just constraints of reality, constrain God. Mm. Mm. So, you know, God, God could have been incarnated as a man or a woman. Um, uh, he could have been um, you know, incarnated in ancient Israel or in modern New York, but uh, you know something had to happen, and as soon as you say it will happen this way, it won't happen other ways. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, we haven't yet, I don't think, referred to C.S. Lewis, but he deals with that argument uh, in Mere Christianity, um, uh, where he says you don't. Uh, God deals with reality; he doesn't deal with nonsense, um, and you can't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't. Um, uh, you're not. Uh, you don't limit God's power simply by playing word games that produce nonsense. Uh. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so mm. in reference to your question then, like I would say that 
the what the author of Hebrews would maintain is that the difference between God prior to or perhaps without the incarnation event and God post incarnation event um, is uh, something very significant. And mm. perhaps perhaps had he had he lived a few years longer or experienced life at from different cultures or you know that that would have perhaps enriched God's experience more dare I say but the sort of the law of diminishing returns perhaps mm, mm. Uh, so I don't know if that answers the question or not um, well the emphasis here is certainly not on the inadequacy of the incarnation it seems to be very much on the other way around the emphasis seems to be here that what's happened has been hugely spectacular yeah and yeah um, I guess in a pragmatic sense the the author of Hebrews, Hebrews is being written to some people, and this is sort of talked about in the next verses, last verses of chapter 5 that we haven't read yet, but who are a bit worried about whether it's really worth sticking with this faith. And the effort here is, is can they have enough faith that God knows them and likes them and loves them and is able to help them? And can they have enough confidence to stick with him? Hmm. That's what verse 16 is talking about, Cam. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Uh, That's chapter 4, 16. uh, Chapter 4 and verse 16. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I I have a question about that. Um, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Another way of saying that would be, uh, for that reason, we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Mm. Now, what is it about what went before which gives us a reason to come to the throne of grace with confidence? So I I don't necessarily see the connection. Um, At first glance, the possibility of a non-secretor arises. Um, uh, So how is it? Where's the connection? What is the reason we can approach the throne of grace with confidence? It seems to be as I read back to it, um, uh, that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize uh, with our Mm. weaknesses uh, so that God is able to, God identifies uh, with our position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, Ken, uh, my summary would, and this is not, this is very, very much a sort of commentary on the text, not really an explanation of, or I'm not claiming this is what Hebrews is saying directly, but the sort of broad sentiment I'm picking up is the incarnation event showed us overwhelmingly that God is interested in our greater good and is willing to suffer on our behalf so that we can achieve it. Mm. Uh, And that is enough to give you confidence. If you're worried about, you know, this divine being, is he nice? Does he like me? Is it, is it worth? He seems to be asking a lot of me. Is it worth it? Uh, What's he going to do if I tell him, everything uh is he embarrassed about to to, to know me uh you know does he want me as part of his family um the the broad sentiment here that the christ who suffered in every way the 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 incarnation event um and the person of christ suggests that yes no we can actually have some confidence that uh that even when it's confusing or appears costly uh it's it's genuinely really worth coming to the throne of grace there's a sense in which God's prepared to get in and get his hands dirty in order to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, 
I was about to launch into verse 11 of chapter 5 because we haven't read the last little part of that chapter which deserves some discussion on its own. And I was very excited about the first half of verse 11 because it confirmed very much the discussion we've had so far. The first part of verse 11 of chapter 5 says, About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> phew, phew. Well, then we're, we're, we're okay because it is hard. It's difficult to explain. Uh- <laughs> no, but Ken, then it says it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Uh, it's got nothing the to do with to my explain explanatory is- ability. It's got everything to do with your ability to understand. <laughs> oh, I've, yeah. I'm going to print that and put that on the wall of my classroom. <laughs> About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Uh, sometimes I think that there might be lawyers who appear in front of me who are trying to explain their position to me, and they might also wish to say the same thing to me. Indeed, <laughs> indeed once I remember, um, uh, it was in the uh, Hawthorne Magistrates Court in Melbourne, um, and I was uh, cross-examining a police sergeant about uh, what he saw um, in the aftermath of a car accident. Uh, and I asked a question and started the question and uh, kept going with the question and um, it didn't come out very well at all. Uh, and the police officer looked blankly at me and said, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Um, and uh, the magistrate looked at me and said, well, I don't understand it either, Mr. Stanton. And of course, <laughs> I responded and said, well, that's hardly surprising, Your Worship. Um, uh, of course, what I meant by that was the question was such a poor question uh, that uh, <laughs> uh, it was impossible for anybody to understand it. Um, but my response, in fact, carried with it the potential implication that uh, it was not surprising <laughs> that the magistrate couldn't understand my very clear question. Uh, so I immediately had to try and explain that. All in all, it was rather an embarrassing moment. But <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Mm. Oh dear. All right. Yeah. Well, let's let's read this because um, it's a rather interesting sort of interlude into the uh, unfolding argument of the story of Hebrews. Uh, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Hmm. I've heard that we are exhorted not to live on milk. We should be having solid food. Um, Here are the teachings that are the solid food. Um, uh, You seem to understand them. Uh, Therefore, you are clearly not infants. Uh, you are spiritual giants uh, because you agree with these things that I am teaching you. And I've always felt a little uncomfortable. Well, that's not what's said, of course. Uh, but again, a little bit like the uh, statement that I made to that, that magistrate. Um, uh, the things that are said uh, carry with them these possible implications that leave you with a sense of hmm. discomfort. Hmm. I was just going to pick up on verse 12. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. That's interesting. It's it's there's an assumption or an implication in there, right? That that somehow that that believing is not something that happens 
as an individual activity in the mind and spiritual life of an individual person. Right? It, it implies that believing, being a believer for a long time and yet not teaching others is somehow falling short. Which contradicts some of the other sentiments elsewhere in, in you know, uh, talking about how everyone has been given different spiritual gifts. Some are teachers and some mm. are not teachers. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, the interesting thing to ask, perhaps, is, well, what are these elementary truths that you don't seem to have understood? Um, and if we go on to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, um, we see what they are. I don't know whether we want to go there now, because otherwise we'll muck up our uh, our weekly um, chapter divisions. Uh, but we've sort of departed from it a little bit uh, by going to the end of chapter 4 this week, so maybe we can go to the start of verse 12. So what are these elementary teachings about Christ? Uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Oh, wow. There you are. Well, there's the resurrection of the yeah, dead. Yeah, so <laughs> the, you, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting and clear and succinct summary. Yeah, I'm intrigued that the... Those who are mature have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. There's something interesting going on here. I commented after our previous recording. I think it may have even been the previous episode. Um, chapter 4. Let me have a quick look. Um, yes. Chapter 4 talked about rest and about um, if Joshua had indeed... If the promised land that Joshua entered the Israelites, took them into, was the complete rest God intended, then then what? why would God say that there's still some of a rest yet to come? And so there's still a special rest. Now, I commented to Cam after we recorded this that there's a whole lot of um, creation narrative connections oh. here. Um, there's obviously the, connect the invocation of seventh day and Sabbath rest. Um, so in verse 4 of chapter 4, there is an explicit, callback to the seventh day God resting from his work of creation. That's very clear. In verse 10 of chapter 4, there was for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors. So that's interesting. Um, and the... There was the, the God sees all creation naked before him, I think was another thing you pointed out to me. Like, yeah, yeah. Everything is naked and exposed and he is the one to whom we're accountable. So... If you're going to follow that idea through and say the author has is holding a a a fair amount of that creation narrative as a context as a frame for some of the the analogies and wording that they're pulling out what do you what comes to your mind when you read the phrase recognize the difference between good and evil yeah, the tree. I mean, I, the tree, the knowledge of good the and tree, evil. The tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And at the end of that chapter three of Genesis, God has to expel them from the garden because now they have become like God, knowing good yeah, and it's evil. It's really interesting. Look, I challenge any of our listeners to go back to creation and to count how many lies the serpent tells, <laughs> because it's not very many. The serpent is strictly truthful in nearly all aspects. Oh, God doesn't want you to eat this tree because if you eat it, he, he'll know that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And then at the end, it says God saw that humankind had become like him, knowing good and evil. And so he kicked them yeah. out of the garden. Yeah, yeah. And here we have, right here, 
just one chapter over in the book of Hebrews after a couple of pretty explicit callbacks to the creation account. Here we have, solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong, who through training have mastered the misguided choice of our human forefathers. They, they, ate, they ate from a tree against God's instruction, a tree that was giving them knowledge of good and evil. And yet here, here we find in verse 14 that those who have through training mastered the skill are recognizing good from evil. That solid food is for those who are, who are mature. I'm not quite sure what to do with this, but I think there's a, there is a re- an interesting connection. I, 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 happening I really there. like it. Um, one of the things that I, uh, it would be interesting to do a word study uh, and see what is meant by the word knowledge of good and evil. Because often in mm. scripture, when one talks about knowledge, one talks about an experience of something. So you, you, you and, and a relationship with something. So now yeah. we have a relationship with good and evil as a result of, of this. But knowledge yeah. of good and evil, perhaps in that sense, is to be hmm. differentiated from the ability to know the difference between strange. good and evil. Uh, you can experience both good and evil, uh, but you may not be able to tell which is which. Uh, here, uh, uh. the maturity is the ability to distinguish between them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ken, my understanding is that the no good and evil, the no does in fact uh, have connotations of a very intimate experience. And... Um, it also employs a bit of a sort of a cultural idiom of the Jewish people. If you wanted to say that you had walked on a very long journey, you might say, I've walked from Dan to Beersheba. And you didn't actually mean you started in Dan and went to Beersheba. It's just one of those is right at the north, I believe, and one at the very south of the kingdom of Israel. So that's just a way of saying you've walked a long way. Um, a bit like us saying it's raining cats and dogs. Uh, so to say that you have knowledge of good and evil the sentiment in the creation account might be if you eat this tree and fruit, you'll be able to experience everything. Hmm. Everything. You couldn't imagine a bigger um, a bigger a contrast than good and evil, much more than Dan and Bathsheba. You know, I mean, this is, this is hmm. the ultimate. This is the ultimate uh, spectrum. And so to yeah. know that, that and to experience all of that is, is to be like God, to know, to experience everything. Um, What's being described here, Ken, when you talked about your ability to distinguish through training, Mark Twain once said, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And and I think what Hebrews has been saying up to date is, is that judgment comes from experience, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment, but it doesn't have to be your bad judgment. Look, look what happened to the Israelites. Look what happened to Moses. Don't, don't you realize you're in danger? That, can't, can't you read the stories that, and this is one of the values of a tradition, a community that preserves a tradition encoded in stories, is it gives you the opportunity to become trained uh, by constant practice in distinguishing good and evil, uh, where the practice may not necessarily be the school of hard knocks. Hopefully we can learn a little bit from the experience of those gone before us. Can, can I hmm. respond to that with two thoughts, one lighthearted and one perhaps a little more serious? Um, yeah. uh, the first uh, lighthearted one is uh, there is a saying amongst pilots 
Um, uh, a superior pilot is one who uses his superior judgment so that he never has to use his superior skill. Um, uh, and and I, I wonder whether there's a little bit of that there. Um, uh, it aligns with your comment, Ken. Um, the other uh, comment that I want to make that perhaps is a little more substantive is this. Um, we were told, Adam and Eve were told, uh, if you eat of that tree, uh, you'll become like God. Uh, and the manner in which they became like God in eating of that tree was that they came to know good and evil. They came to experience good and evil. And here in Hebrews, we have the same message, uh, but in the uh, from the other side. Oh, so we it's it's upside, it's upside down. down. So that God experiences good and evil, and here we have. Uh, the way in which God experiences the evil because he takes on the form of humanity and he is tempted in the same way that we are. He has the weaknesses that we as humanity have. Uh, so that um, what was said there is in fact very true, not just because we become like God, but because God also becomes like us. Hmm. Yeah, there, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of interesting thoughts there. And, uh, and Adam and Eve, of course, do not boldly approach the throne of grace. In, no. In chapter 3, they're, they're quite fearful. They are, in fact, afraid of, afraid of death. Uh, hmm. so, so the paradigm is there, and against which the event of the incarnation is, is set. The incarnation is a different sort of event. When, when we see Christ, we can see that Adam and Eve were wrong not to come straight to God. Yep, yep. Uh, and uh, that we ought we ought be more willing. Uh, look, uh, I propose leaving it there uh, because it's a fairly natural break, and because we're we're starting to reach the upper limit of our shorter episodes over the holiday season. Um, this one, I'm just looking at the clock. I'm realising this one's not much shorter. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we have a lot of fun recording these, and uh, we enjoy having discussions, whether they're recorded or not. But having been recorded, it can, of course, now be distributed free of charge to anyone who would be interested. So if you know someone who might be interested, please uh, forward them uh, the link for the podcast or tell them where to find it. And uh, you can contact us any time if you have any questions or feedback or comments that, that you would like talked about. Our email address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And we hope you join us again next week.